Well, good morning, church. We continue our series this morning in the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Billy. And it is, uh, it's exciting to be together. And just to kind of pick up right where we left off last week, if you were with us last week, uh, we just began in these first three verses where we see this beautiful and sort of overarching uh, statement about who Christ is. We talked uh, last week that this series that we're in uh, called Hebrews, Modern Faith Anchored in Ancient Truth, one of the reasons why we're approaching this study at all is because of the way in which it continually elevates the supremacy of Christ and focuses our eyes on him because the other thing that the text will do again and again as we study it together is it will repeatedly warn us about the danger of drifting away. And in fact, as we get to chapter two next week, we see that very specifically in the first section of chapter two, that there is a danger for each and every one of us if we don't remember remember who Christ is and elevate him to his proper position that we will begin this sort of process of spiritual drifting away. So now in Exodus chapter one, in the text we read, as we finish out the chapter this morning, he's already talked about the supremacy of Christ in an overarching way, that he's the radiance of God's glory, that he's the exact imprint of his nature, that all things were created by him, that he is carrying all things to their intended end. And then he talks about the fact that Christ made purification for sins once and for all. He sat down at the right hand of the father in elevation. And he goes on then to compare Christ to angels. It's interesting here. Back to Hebrews chapter one. We just looked at it together. He says, having become, this is verse four, when he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He'll go on in the rest of the chapter to talk about the superiority of Christ, superiority of Christ over angels, which is, it's, it's great for me because I'll tell you, I, um, I spend a lot of time thinking and sort of answering, talking to people about uh, the ways in which the Dodgers baseball team is like Jesus. There are a lot of ways uh, there are a lot of ways that I see the Dodgers being like Jesus. I think about it quite a bit. And uh, one of them that the author makes very clear here in the text we're looking at this morning is that like Christ, the Dodgers are superior to the angels. Right there, it's right there. Both, you know, it's just, it seems like it's in the Bible. You guys can't get mad. Uh, the superiority of Christ, the angels. And he'll make this case, and, and he'll come back to it even later in the text, but he makes this case out of the Old Testament. So what you will see in the, in the chapters we're, or in the chapter we're looking at today is that again and again, he says Christ is superior. The name he's inherited is superior to the name angel. And then he's going he's gonna to make his case by quoting from the Old Testament, right? So if you have uh, someplace to write today, by the way, in the seat back in front of you, there is a card um, that has some information about our church. And I didn't know this, but if you flip it over, there's actually a place you can take some notes. I mentioned to the staff a couple weeks ago, I said, it'd be nice if there was a place where we could, uh, you know, take some notes. And they were like, yeah, we already have that. Take a look around, why don't you, before you complain about stuff. So um, if you want to write some of it down, as we get into the text, I will point out some of these Old Testament references for you. It's a great project. If you want to go back and do some of the research, another reason why we chose to study the book of Hebrews in this season is the beautiful and very pointed way in which the author to the Hebrews, he is incorporating both the Old Testament and the New Testament and showing again and again and again the ways in which the Old Testament is still viable and vital and absolutely necessary to our understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. You know, there is a tendency in our world today for us to sort of park or camp in the gospels or to park in the epistles, right? You talk to people and they go, oh yeah, I love the Bible. I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John like a hundred times and I just love it. And you go, well, yeah, well, tell us about the Old Testament. You know, do you, you enjoy reading the Old Testament? No, I never read the Old Testament. You go, why? Well, I just don't see its relevance to the day. I just don't understand it. We absolutely want to speak against that mindset. 
Because what we see declared in the scripture, and some of the reason why we even have been studying Exodus through the course of the summer, is for us to be reminded and reaffirmed in the truth that the entirety of the Old Testament fits like a hand in a glove with the New Testament. All of it was a flashing signpost and an arrow pointing ahead to Christ. The author to the Hebrews here is going to talk about the superiority of Jesus over the angels, but he's going to do so out of the Old Testament scriptures, showing both his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and his understanding of the fact that Jesus himself declared that he is revealed on every page. I love what happens after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is the first one to do this, to use the Old Testament to demonstrate who he is. On the road to Emmaus, remember after the resurrection, as Jesus is, uh, he, he shows up and he's walking with these two disciples who are a little bit bummed out, right? Because they're having this conversation between themselves to go, we thought that Jesus was like the guy. We thought he was the one that had been foretold. We thought he was going to do all these things. And now he's dead and we're just not sure what's happening. You know, we've heard some rumors, whatever. Jesus shows up with them. And look at what happens. This is uh, Luke chapter 24 in verse, um, let's see, in verse 26, 25. Jesus says to these men on the, Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, wow, you've missed what all the prophets said. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look at this in verse 27 of, of Luke 24. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How cool would that be? How cool would it be to be in that particular master class, right? To sit with Jesus and have him go, flip with me to Genesis, if you will. Here I am. Let's turn to Exodus. Here I am, right? Deuteronomy, let's work our way to the prophets. Let's work our way through the Psalms. Here I am. Again and again, Jesus is revealing to them the ways in which he was on display in the Old Testament. You and I want to pay careful attention that we don't relegate the Old Testament to some sort of secondary position that we don't relegate it to some sort of antiquity in which it has no value to us because Jesus himself said, look at where I am in these pages. Later in this same chapter, Luke chapter 24, he's with his disciples, right? In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He says, look, all of this was about me. I want you to see it. And that's important for us as well. One of the reasons we're in Hebrews, in addition to the other things that we've already mentioned, is that we continually want to see the viability, the vitality of the Old Testament as it points us ahead to Christ. So back to Hebrews chapter 1. We will see the author here in his statement about the superiority of Christ refer to the Old Testament. Now, there is another note I want to make for you. If you decide to do the homework and go back and look at all of his Old Testament references, you may find a little bit of a hiccup in the fact that the author to the Hebrews appears to be quoting from a Greek translation of the Old Testament, right, rather than our Hebrew translation. In most of your Bibles, unless you've got a really specific translation, most of our Bibles are a translation into English from the Hebrew text. What the author to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews, sorry, that's confusing, appears to be quoting from is a Greek translation, and the Greek translation he's quoting from isn't even exactly like the Greek translation that you might be able to go to the Christian bookstore and buy or pick up on Amazon. So there are some little discrepancies, but the heart, the, the meaning behind it is absolutely the same, and we absolutely affirm that the book of Hebrews is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
But if you go back to do the cross-referencing, you may find a couple of little discrepancies. Even this morning, you may see a couple of those as we look at it together. He says, Jesus, seated at the right hand of his majesty, having purified once and for all sins, having purified them, he sits down and is elevated above the angels, superior to the angels, even as his name is superior to the angels. The first thing he mentions is that Jesus has a greater name. And he's not just talking about the name Jesus, he's talking about the title, Son. That in the Trinity, we've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the title, Son, that belongs to Jesus, is a greater name, it's a greater title, it has greater meaning and weight than the title of angel, which just means messenger. It's interesting, he quotes here in verse 5, this is Hebrews 1, 5, he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. First, he's quoting out of Psalm chapter two. We looked at this verse last week. This is a a messianic Psalm that the Jewish people always recognized and, and waited for as pointing to the Messiah. In Psalms chapter two, verses seven and eight, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus has a superior name than the name of the angels because Jesus is called a son. To whom of the angels? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is to none of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. That's something that uniquely belongs to Jesus. He is eternally the son, but we also understand from the text that he was declared the son in a specific way. Romans articulates that a little bit better, that he was declared in a more articulate way to be the son in his death and resurrection. Romans chapter one, verse four says this. Romans chapter one, verse four says, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This isn't just a name that Jesus got down the road. It's eternally been his name. It's eternally been his role. It's eternally his position. But there is something authoritative and declarative that God does in the resurrection where he says, this is my son. Literally, he does that at the transfiguration, right? When he says to the the disciples, this is my son, shut up and listen to him, right? Where he does it at the baptism of Jesus, where he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is a greater name. The writer of the Hebrews also refers to a passage in 2 Samuel that was talking about the the Davidic covenant, right? The fact that God had this, uh, God had this blessing to pour out onto the, the throne and the family of David, that he would be a son and would reign forever, right? It says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, chapter, verse 14, it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house, he says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know that Solomon's rule and Solomon's reign was not forever. This prophecy, this promise was not fulfilled in any of the the descendants of David until the Lord Jesus. But his sonship is declared in authority. The writer of the Hebrews says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, Or your throne, my son, will continue forever. He didn't say that to any of the angels. His name matters. That title matters. We get that, right? We get the fact that that the the sonship of Christ, that names have significance. I was with um, with my family a few years ago at Ruby's. We like to go to Ruby's. It's kind of a good, you know, just a little hamburger place, whatever, if you've been there. 
And we were at Ruby's and uh, the waiter comes to the table to introduce himself and we all look at the name tag and we're kind of a little taken back because the name tag on the waiter's uh, shirt said Jesus, right? And my kids were like, whoa, (laughs) this is going to be a great meal, you know? And uh, so we're, I'm like, yeah, just, it's, you know, pronounce Jesus, like, just chill out. Don't, don't be weird. But what was really funny is my littlest son, Will, he was just a little guy at the time, every opportunity he had, he'd go, dear Jesus, I think I'd like to have the chicken strips, right? You know? And the waiter's like, all right, you know? And then like, when we're praying for the meal, Will's like, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, not the waiter, for the food before us. And we, you know, and, or then he'd be like, Jesus, I just want to thank you for the ranch dressing. It's really good. You know, was, there was kind of this sense in which he was playing it a little far. So, of course, I spanked him, and it was, uh, <laughs> I think it was a powerful learning moment for both of us. Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't spank him, but I did feel uncomfortable. Maybe like you're feeling uncomfortable right now. Like, that seems a little bit like over the line, right? I felt the whole meal, I just kept going like, can we please stop calling him Jesus? It's so strange, you know? He's the waiter. Let's just, uh, let's just go easy on that language, right? Because we get the fact that there is value to a name, that there's something powerful about a name. Angels, for what it's worth, basically are messengers. And their name, their role is important. Their role is vital. They have a powerful role throughout the scripture and even today. But it isn't like being a son. He says first, there is a greater name. Jesus has a greater name. I love what Paul says in Antioch in Acts 13, verse 33. He says, this he has fulfilled to us, speaking about God, this promise he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the gospel message of the apostle Paul, as the new church was beginning, he would preach about the fact that the sonship of Jesus was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he is a son, that he has a greater name. Not only does the writer to the Hebrews affirm his greater name, he also affirms the fact that there is a greater reverence due to Jesus than to angels, of course. It says in verse six of Hebrews chapter one, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In verse six, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 43. It's a loose reference to Deuteronomy 32, 43. But what's he talking about? He's saying, we can't say that Jesus and angels are on the same footing, that they hold the same position. We can't say that they're equals because God looks at the angels and says, you should be worshiping the Lord Jesus. He's in a different status. There is an elevation to him in that he is worthy of the worship, even of the angels. Yes, they're supernatural beings. Yes, they are eternal beings, right? They have a beginning, but they have no end. But they are finite, right? God has created them. They are created beings, and they were created in part to worship the Lord Jesus. We see that at the end of time. By the way, there is some question in the text about when it says, uh, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Uh, when you look at the, at the nativity account, right? You look at the gospels when Jesus is born, we don't actually see necessarily in those texts the angels worshiping Jesus. We can sort of infer that they did, but the angels in those texts are worshiping, they're praising God about the arrival of Jesus, But what we absolutely have no question about, and there can be no argument made about, is the fact that at the second coming, at the return of Christ, when he presents his firstborn, that the angels will bow down. It says in Revelation chapter 5, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, 
numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, the angels will worship. The angels will worship. And so the author says he's superior in name. He's superior in the fact that there is reverence and worship due him. And that's different than the angels. The angels themselves worship him. Not only is he superior in those two ways, but back to Hebrews chapter one, he goes on in verses seven through 12 to talk about the fact that Jesus has a greater permanence and greater power. Look at these verses. In seven through 12, it says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a reference to Psalm 104 verse four. The idea here is that the angels would be sent on missions. And we all get the idea that wind and fire, those are powerful, right? Those are powerful images and they're powerful things, but they're transitory and they're temporal. They're, they show up for a season and then they're gone. Flame and fire is powerful, but it's not permanent. He says, we understand from the scripture that God uses his angels, his messengers, his flames, and his fire. Powerful, but short. Powerful, but momentary. Temporary, transitional. He says, not Jesus. The angels are less than Jesus because of the nature of the way they work, the nature of their messenger work. It's different than the power and the permanence of Jesus. Look at the, the verse he quotes next. In seven, he says, of the angels, God says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Not a flame, not a wind, but a permanent sovereignty. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. In these verses, he's quoting from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Right, He's quoting from these passages and talking about who Jesus is. And he says, angels, they're powerful, but they're temporal. They're transitory. Flames and winds. Jesus, his reign and his rule will last forever. He was there at the foundation of the earth. We saw last week that he created it all. And he will be there when the created order that we know is rolled up like a robe and cast aside. There's something different. You can't say that of any of the angels. Jesus is superior in his power and his permanence, right? Superior in his name, superior in the reverence that's due him. But here he's talking about the permanence of God, the power of God. It's interesting. I had to call, uh, I had to call DirecTV this week because they, they asked me a couple, when we moved to Fullerton, they asked me, they said, do you want, uh, do you want to get the NFL Sunday ticket? And I said, no, I don't like football. And they said, uh, Okay, well, do you, uh, do you want to, if you can get it for free, do you want the NFL Sunday ticket? And I said, well, for free? Now we're talking about something else. I mean, I don't like football, but I do like winning fantasy football uh, with people that know football. That's fun. So um, I, I, would, I would love to have it for free. That's no problem. So they said, okay, we're going to give it to you for free. Enjoy it, right? And then the next bill comes and they charge me $70 for NFL Sunday ticket. So my wife goes, I thought you said this was free. And I said, well, the lady told me it was free. And she goes, well, you're going to have to call in. So I call in. And you know how this works, right? The DirecTV thing is just more trouble. Like any customer service. No, sorry, if you own DirecTV, I apologize. 
but not coincidentally, I would love to meet you. Uh, so, um, so I have to call the customer service thing. And first you're talking to a computer, right? Press the button, say your name, why are you calling? Da, da, da. That, that computer thing takes 10 minutes. Finally, I get it to let me talk to an actual person. And the actual person I get, you know, you know they're just like brand new, just like, hi, this is Veronica. And I'm, I, how can I help you with your DirecTV? And I'm like, Veronica, I just need you to cancel DirecTV. I just need you to have some integrity. As a company, you said I was gonna get this thing for free and charge me $70. And I just want it to be taken off the bill. And she's like, um, well, you know, would you be interested in a package that includes that? And I'm like, no, I'm not interested in it. I don't want any of that. Just take it off my bill. And she's like, well, what if I could get it to you for free? <laughs> and I said, you already did that trick on me last time. I'm not falling for that trick. I just want it to go. I don't care about football. I don't ever want to watch a game. And this confirms it. It's, football and I are not meant to go together. So take it off the thing. And she goes, uh, I don't have the authority to remove it. You have to talk to an NFL Sunday ticket uh, official. And I'm like, well, you better put that person on the phone, you know? So I wait another five minutes, whatever. They finally put me with an NFL Sunday ticket. I promise the story has a point. Uh, I just want you to feel my pain. So I'm making the story long, right? Um, they put me in an NFL Sunday ticket and that person continues to go, well, what if I could get it to you for 40 bucks? I said, I wouldn't pay one buck for it. I didn't even really want it for free, but I took it because it seemed easy. Please just take it off the bill. And she's like, well, it's a little more complicated than that because the billing cycle has already started. I said, get me your manager. I want to talk. I don't want to talk to the temporary. Veronica was sweet. She has a great voice. The computer seems very efficient. You seem like you know a lot about NFL Sunday ticket, but I want to talk to the boss. Because I'm ready to, you know, like get to where the power is, you know? And when I finally get to the boss, I've been on the phone for like 30 minutes, and I said, I just want you to take this off my bill. And she goes, perfect, it's gone. And I'm like, thanks, done, right? A a greater power. (laughs) A greater power. That's the point of that story, right? That's the point of that story. The angels are great for what they do, and they do some beautiful and brilliant things. But Jesus is permanent. And by his word, the world was created. A greater permanence and power. He has a greater name. He has due greater reverence. He has a greater power and permanence. And then lastly, back to Hebrews chapter one, we see very clearly in Hebrews chapter one, he says this in 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To which of the angels has he ever said, this is your seat here next to me and all things will be subjected to you? You see, the reality is that Jesus is not only the creator and sustainer of all things, but he is the king of the universe and all things fall under subjection to him. This idea of him putting his feet on the backs of, his, uh, of those he has conquered. It's, it's kind of a weird image for us when we think about the loving, gracious, sacrificial Jesus. But there is a picture of a conquering king. And the first and the, the final thing that he will conquer is death. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. It says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. Jesus puts his boots on the neck of sin and death to show his superiority. And to whom of the angels did God ever say, hey, put your, put your boot on the neck of death? He couldn't have said it because the angels weren't capable of it. No, there's a supremacy and a superiority of Jesus over the angels. The angels have the role, it says in the end, in verse 14, back to Hebrews chapter one, the end of the chapter, 
It says, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels have their role. They are servants of the ministry of Christ on our behalf, the behalf of those who will inherit salvation. But there is a great chasm, my friends, between a servant and a sovereign. And Jesus is the sovereign. That's what the author is trying to say to us again and again. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels, superior in name and in power and in permanence and authority, in reverence and awe that's due him. And here's the thing. So I, um, I walk through my messages every week uh, with my wife in advance, right? I'm not sure whether she likes that or not, but that's just kind of part of the, that's part of the bargain. So on Fridays, um, we sit down together and I usually will just go, here's, here's how I think the message is going to unfold on Sunday. So I'm walking her through this message, uh, the superiority of Christ over angels. And she says at the end of my, uh, at the end of my, you know, recitation or whatever, she says what I am guessing probably a lot of you in this room are already thinking. She said, yeah, of course they're, he's superior to angels. Like why bother to waste a whole chapter saying that, Right. Because I think for many of us, I mean, obviously she's got some spiritual issues she needs to work out, but uh, that's like another message, right? So, <laughs> all right, I, I know, I know, it's fine. We have, we have a very comfortable couch, so um, it's fine, it's fine. She says, what's the, I don't get why he took all this time to say it. Why does he quote all these voices or these verses from the Old Testament? Isn't it enough to just go, hey, in case you're wondering, Jesus is superior to the angels. And then we go, yeah, okay, we already knew that, right? I think most people have sort of this kind of common understanding that Jesus is superior to the angels. She says, why does he take all this time to articulate it? And I'm guessing that you this morning, you're looking at it going, okay, why didn't you just say that? I would have believed it. You didn't have to back it up with all this stuff. Well, here's the issue. You see, the writer to the Hebrews is writing during a time when when the Hebrew Christians, brand new Christians, the the earliest Christians to follow Jesus, these, these Jewish converts are really wrestling with the sovereignty and the deity of Christ because they're monotheistic. They've always been monotheistic. The Lord, he is one, right? The Lord is one. And now you've got all these Hebrew Christians that are going, well, actually... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Lord is one, but it's, uh, Jesus is part of the one. He's, he's part of the Trinity, right? And the Hebrew people are going, you're a heretic. You're a heretic because you're saying the Lord is not one. You're saying Jesus is God. Jesus can't be God and have God be God. You're saying there's two. That's heresy. And so they're wanting, these, these Hebrew Christians are wanting to do, and it's a common temptation, they're wanting to diminish the role of Jesus in ways that don't take away all of his superiority and don't take away all of his power, but are just more acceptable to the age. You see, because if these Hebrew Christians can look at their friends and neighbors, if they can look at their family members who are going, you are a heretic, and they can say, well, look, okay, all right, here's the thing. Jesus is powerful. He has a great message. He's doing some incredible things. He was sent in a very specific way by God. He loved people. He gave a great message. He was killed before his time. But, you know, maybe we move him down to be on par with the angels. What does that do? Well, it makes it a lot easier for their friends and family and neighbors. It makes it easier for them to just sort of deal with who Jesus is if they diminish his role. If they diminish his role and make him on par with the angels, then they don't have a problem with monotheism. They're not equating him with God. They're they're not really heretics anymore. They're just saying, well, this is a very unique kind of a prophet. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, no, you're on dangerous ground here. You can't make him less than God. 
Because a diminished God then promotes a diminished faith. And diminished faith then promotes diminished obedience and sacrifice. And diminished obedience and sacrifice ultimately produces a diminished church. And so he says, no. Jesus isn't on par with the angels. He's not just like an angelic being. He's not just a supernatural guy who did some miracles and did some miraculous things and he's right up there with the angels. The author of the Hebrews is saying, be very careful because he is greater than the angels in every category. And to diminish him is to do real damage to both your followership and to the church at large. And here's where it's relevant to us. You see, I I would guess that there are probably very few of you in here who are tempted to put Jesus on par with the angels. Maybe if you grew up in a Jehovah's Witness background, if you come from a sort of a new age background, maybe you look at Jesus as just like a supernatural being who had some great things to say. But I would guess that the majority of us in here, uh, that's probably not your issue. You're probably willing to go, yeah, no, I don't think Jesus was just a good angel, like that he was just like like the best of the angels or whatever. That's not your issue. But that doesn't mean that we're not guilty, each and every one of us, of diminishing the role of Christ. And so the warning here is as relevant to us this morning as it is in the time in which it was written. You see, the danger for us is to diminish Jesus in our own lives, to diminish the Lord Jesus in our churches, to make him easier to deal with, to make him easier to deal with in the age in which we live. You see, you're not going to deal with a lot of confrontation in your, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your homes. You're not going to deal with a lot of problem if you reduce Jesus to a good guy. If you reduce Jesus to a buddy, if you reduce him to a guy who loved people, a guy who was generous, who was kind, a guy who was a radical and a revolutionary. You can go anywhere in this country and anywhere in the world and say, I just believe that Jesus was a revolutionary and that's it. And they'll go, yeah, he was revolutionary. Good for you, buddy. But the moment you say, I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, very God, that the earth was created by him and is sustained by him and exists for his glory. Then they go, ah, hold on. Now we got a problem. Now you're being intolerant. And so there is a temptation for us to diminish God. We like Jesus to be this nice guy, this buddy, this friend, this philosopher maybe, right? You like Jesus the philosopher or you like Jesus the psychologist, right? Just kind of helps you get your head on straight. Hmm, that's an easy way to deal with Jesus as a psychologist or the philosopher. We like maybe Jesus the radical, Jesus the revolutionary. Some of us, we really never move past Jesus in the manger, right? You like that little baby that can't go anywhere, doesn't say anything, doesn't ask anything of you, just looks cute, and has donkeys around him, that is kind of a nice image. We like to diminish Jesus to this baby, to this buddy, to this philosopher, to this psychologist, maybe to a revolutionary. We like Jesus, the human prophet, Jesus, even the martyr. You go, oh, he's so sacrificial. I'll be sacrificial like him. But can I tell you this? When you diminish Jesus in order that you can deal more effectively with him or in order to be more acceptable in the world in which you live, your diminished Christ will ultimately result in a diminished faith, which will absolutely result in diminished obedience because you don't have to obey Jesus the philosopher. You don't have to obey Jesus the radical. You don't have to give of your time and your money and your efforts and your talents. You don't have to fall down on your knees before Jesus, your buddy, and worship We don't want to have to deal with Jesus, the God of the universe, because the God of the universe cannot be dealt with. He has to be worshiped. He has to be obeyed. He has to be sacrificed to. If he's God, and he is, something greater is demanded of us. 
And so the temptation is to bring him down to a more acceptable level, to bring him down to an easier place. You know, we, we talked about that story with my kids and, and Jesus, the waiter. And you kind of laugh at it. Maybe you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But isn't it, isn't it true that for many of us, that's, sort of the, that's actually the place we've relegated the Lord Jesus to in our lives? Jesus, I'd like another glass of water, and I'd like it fast, please. Right? Jesus, I, I asked for this to have no cheese on it, and it's got cheese on it, and so I don't know what the problem is here, but I don't like sandwiches with cheese. Right? Oh, let's take it out of the, out of the restaurant realm in case it's not relevant enough to you. Jesus... I've been asking for this new job and I don't know what you're waiting for but if you don't give me a new job soon I'm going to find another waiter. Right? And so you jump from place to place to place. There are churches in our world and in our city that will go, hey, Jesus just wants to wait on. He's, he wants to be the best waiter you've ever seen. He wants to meet all your needs. He's fast and easy. He's comfortable. He's going to make you feel at home. Come to our church because Jesus just wants to give you everything you ever asked for. This isn't a church. This isn't a church that diminishes the role of Jesus to make him easier to deal with or more acceptable. This is a church that affirms the truth that Jesus is God. And if he's God, we gotta get on our knees. If he's God, we gotta start stop with all of our demands and our complaints. And we have to go, Jesus, what do you want? I am the servant. You are the sovereign. And that's why this passage matters. And it's why he'll lead very naturally then into chapter two, where he'll say, therefore, therefore, look at it, Hebrews chapter two, verse one, because of all this, therefore, we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. We have to sit up straighter. We have to pay closer attention because Jesus isn't just a buddy and he's not just a friend and he's not just a radical and a revolutionary. He is God, by nature of his greater name, by greater, his greater permanence, by gr- his greater worship that is due him, by nature of his greater power and authority. And as God, he demands something different of us. Let's be a church that reveres God, who he is, for who he is, and that doesn't bring him down to a more acceptable level that makes him easier to deal with. And watch the way that putting Jesus in the proper place puts our faith in the proper place, puts our obedience and our sacrifice in the proper place, and then puts our churches in the proper place. But it starts with recognizing the supremacy of Christ in every realm. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to really understand this, this truth, to not diminish who you are, to not make less of who you are, but to recognize, like it says in Philippians 2, that at your name, Lord Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and in earth and under the earth that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, give us the faith and give us, give us the heart and the mind, the understanding to bow our knee, to bend our knee and bow our heads before it's required of us to do it by choice to do it because we see you and we know you God help us to be people who honor you as God very God we pray that in Jesus name amen